This is the audio from a recent Institute of Economic Affairs YouTube video. We've stripped the audio so that you can listen on the go. I'm not denying that there are circumstances and places in which this may well have been the case. Yeah. But what's striking about the documents I've been looking at is that we have peasants who are, I think, looking to have access to the mill mm. so that they can produce um, at a level that goes beyond or takes them beyond subsistence. Yeah. It's a society in which the institutional frameworks to facilitate exchange aren't very strong, and yet there's a lot of exchange. Hello, and welcome to the IEA's YouTube channel. Uh, I'm Daniel Freeman, and today we'll be discussing the role of peasants uh, and entrepreneurship in medieval Europe. To discuss this, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Robert Portus. Uh, Robert is a lecturer in medieval history at the University of Lincoln. The principal focus of his research is early uh, and central medieval history of the Iberian Peninsula, particularly on areas, uh, particular areas of interest include social relations in the village world, questions regarding the social and economic agency of peasants. Um, he's written countless articles and two books, and he has a third on the way. Robert, thank you for being here. Hi, nice to be here. Yeah, no. Um, so I thought to start off with, uh, we could discuss some of the terms, because when we say peasant, it often comes with a lot of negative con connotations. You often think of people being poor, ignorant, superstitious, mm. oppressed, not real economic actors. So to start with, what do you mean when you say peasant? I think that's a very good starting point. And uh, I should say that for many historians, your definition still, I think, holds true. They, mm. they do think that peasants are uh, best characterised as a group that is uh, exploited um, and that's its most salient characteristic. But agency uh, isn't often, I think, afforded to peasants in quite the way it should be. So my definition of a peasant is deliberately capacious. Mm. I take peasants to be um, individuals involved in the labour process, which of course in the period that I work on means people who spend some part of their weekly existence farming land. Now mm. this may be land that they own, very often it's not land that they own, mm. but it's that concrete involvement in farming that I think um, um, stands as the, as the best way to understand the peasantry. Yeah. So there are rich peasants. And, and labouring um, rather, than, rather than employing others to do your work. Yes, although I think that there are peasants who do also employ other peasants mm. uh, to work for them. And I suppose the crucial thing is to move away from the idea that um, all peasants are uniformly poor mm. um, in a given uh, social formation. Um, and that can be at the unit of the village. Yeah. Often I think there's a sort of timelessness, uh, a sort of staid, um, all-encompassing poverty mm. that uh, is used to sort of paint yeah. what we expect the village world to look like in the Middle Ages. And I don't think that that's fair. Yeah, I, I think that's certainly true. I mean, when I was at university, there was certainly an emphasis on there is the elite and then there's everyone. There's a, a sort of undifferentiated mass of, of 
oppressed peasantry. And the only thing, you might be interested in the social relations between the classes, but not within those classes. Um, so your, your real area of expertise is um, northern, northern Spain mm -hmm. um, in the 9th, 10th and into the, the 11th century. Um, in, this is the part of Christian Spain that is still in Christian uh, hands. If you were to be transported back to Astorius, say, in, sure. uh, in the mid-10th century AD, and you were to look at one of these villages that you've studied, what, what would you see? Well, given the nature of the documents that we have to help us to understand this world, um, and I suppose given the limitations of those documents, we do need to employ our historical imaginations to mm. some degree here. But um, you're thinking of a world that is uh, almost overwhelmingly rural. I think that's mm. the thing that would, would, uh, would hit home first of all, um, with small communities. I mean, there has been some debate as to whether we might call them villages or not. You know, do they have sufficient internal stability? Do they have things that villages have? A church, church for, for example. example. Yeah. Um, I'm happy to call them villages and to mm. leave the terminological discussion to one side. Um, and of course, some villages are bigger than others, but really, um, it is a landscape um, peopled by, um, uh, these are estimates, but let's say 90% of the population um, who work as farmers on the land. Mm. Um, there are um, aristocratic groups, this is clear from the documentation, but it's hard to say quite so much about uh, where aristocrats actually lived mm. in this period. The archaeology isn't very clear on this, um, which is striking, and we could come back to that perhaps. Yeah. But, um, but there's enough archaeology now, um, in addition to the documents we have, to give us a sense of what villages looked like. So mm. we're mostly talking um, of, uh, let's say in the year 900, of uh, uh, places that have a dozen at a stretch, 20 um, uh, houses, which are materially very simple. We're mm. talking uh, largely um, timber buildings and, of course, farmland, or at least exploitation of um, the varying terrains of the northern peninsula. So in the Asturias, where you have more mountain, you might expect the balance between um, cereal farming and... Uh, pastoralism. Exactly. Lean more to pastoralism. That's, that's right. right. Um, but there are areas where there is quite a lot of decent lowland mm. um, and one of the things I've been interested in doing actually is seeing whether we can find some correspondence between the areas where cereal agriculture is is um, uh, easier to do at scale and uh, different economic developments. Right so in in your conception the um, there isn't there doesn't seem to be much presence of landowners of nobility in in this system so what sort of landholding would we see do do peasants in this region own their own land mostly or is it mostly leased to them by social superiors okay so i'll i'll, I'll go to the um, aristocrats first mm. so there's a sort of physical footprint they've left for us is almost non-existent mm. and this is of course a problem for trying to understand where we locate them in the landscape but it's important to stress we know they existed um, because we have documents that show these people um, living lives and doing things mm. that the great mass of people did not do. Um, we know at the sort of most 
elevated levels, mm. some uh, high-ranking aristocrats. I've written about some of these people in certain regions um, of northern Spain. Um, they're involved with the king's court. Mm. Um, so, okay, we have a couple of cities by the 10th century, worthy of the name, certainly Leon. In, in northern In northern Spain, Spain that's yeah. right, sorry. Um, which is the capital of the, of the kingdom and the polity. Um, and Santiago de Compostela in the west, which has become a pilgrim mm. route um, by the period that I focus on. Now, when we think about the peasantry and their relationships with the land in terms of ownership, one of the mainstays of the historiography um, is that the peasant pr proprietor holds a certain sort of allure for for historians, mm. or for at least some historians who've worked on northern Spain in this period. And one of the reasons for this is that it is uh, um, explained as the consequence of the fact that the southern half of the peninsula um, um, what, had been conquered and was indeed in the hands in the 10th century of um, the uh, Islamic Caliphate at Cordoba. Mm. So the idea um, here is that we have a, um, effectively a society of frontiers, mm. pioneers, if you like, uh, yeah. who... Uh, Independent-minded. Independent-minded. Self-sufficient. Precisely, yes. And, and therefore not, um, not sort of so beholden to exactly. aristocratic interests. Exactly. So, so in fact, um, most historians, I think, would accept that there, are, there is a greater proportion of mm. free peasant proprietors in northern Iberia mm. than you would find, say, in other parts of Western Europe at this time. Right. Now, having said that, yes, very many own land. It would seem from the documents, at least, that mm. very many peasants own land. But there are also people who work for landlords. Mm. Uh, sometimes those landlords may themselves be rich peasants, of course. Yeah. And there is also, um, there are indications that there is a, I think, relatively small, but nonetheless significant a section of society which we might call the servile. Uh, yes. So S serfs. Yeah. I know that's a controversial yes. term. Are they serfs or are they slaves? I'll go this far. Mm. There are um, unfree labourers tied to the land, certainly, um, and there are other people who look more like slaves in the sense that we use that term to mean perhaps people who are, uh, are found in domestic contexts. Mm grand houses, yeah. uh, large estates, that sort of thing. But this, this, would, this class of people would very much be a, a minority? Or? I think so. I think so. I, I don't think that there's enough um, in the documents to allow us to suggest that this is a significant um, um, proportion of the population mm. at large. Uh, one of the things that's most striking by, oh, sorry, um, when looking at the documents that I look mm. at is that um, well, the first thing that comes to mind, or at least came to my mind, was there are a, an awful lot of free peasants here, mm. um, buying and selling and involved in business interests. Yeah. And that's really what, uh, yeah. what I, me hooked. I, I actually want to come back on that because you, you, you brought up, you've brought up these documents that you, you use to provide evidence for your um, uh, work on, on peasant landholding and um, entrepreneurship. Um, what what sort of documents are we working with in, in 9th and 10th century Spain? Okay, well, historians work with what they can, of course. Everything mm. you can get in a period as distant as the period I work on is, is I think, the approach to take. Mm. But um, 
I would say mostly we, we work with what we call charters. Um, so simplifying greatly, I suppose, um, a charter is um, normally a document which um, vouchsafes a title deed. Mm. So it um, can be thought of as a contract, and we know that they're mm. in fact taken sometimes to settle disputes, to court cases, that mm -hmm. sometimes people actually say they've brought the documents or they point to something that's been said in a document. Mm. Um, but again, that leaves a lot of space for um, how we might flesh out this definition. And some charters deal with sales, others with uh, donations, mm. uh, very few in Northern Spanish contexts with, um, I suppose what we might call bilateral exchange, which is a slightly different thing, of course, to, to outright sale. Um, um, there are a few manumissions. Uh, they can deal with all sorts of things. Mm. And when you really start to dig into what charters are, you realise that that uh, it's quite hard to be precise. But the, the, the particular kinds of charters that I'm interested in are ones that evidence peasants going about the accumulation of property. Right. So it, it, what you might see in one of these charters is... Rodrigo and his wife right. sell X bit of land in exchange for X number of cows, or Perhaps. or in yeah. uh, one one case I I read in your uh, in one of your articles was um, uh, a peasant who exchanged some land for a carpet as well, <laughs> right. which I, I found I found quite interesting because this is this is clearly. A, a carpet is clearly an example of what you might call a, a luxury good. It's yes. not. It's not an essential. So this clearly isn't someone who's about to starve and therefore is selling his land just to avoid that. I'm glad you uh, you picked up on that detail there because I think it's yeah. an important detail that if you look at what people are are using as a mm. mode of payment. Occasionally we are surprised, and in that context, it, as you say, it cannot be the case that um, this is a peasant uh, couple who um, uh, have decided that in order to, um, I suppose... Subsist. To subsist, yeah. precisely, that uh, what they need is, is, a, is a finer carpet. Yeah. So this is, this is um, illuminating in a number of ways. I mean, I, I suppose one thing to think about here is that this is perhaps a certain kind of object that has prestige attached mm. to it. Um, but yes, it does suggest that we are not dealing with people who are always um, on the breadline, so to speak. Mm. Yeah, yeah that's, that's really interesting. And actually, on the topic of the breadline, that moves us quite nicely onto the, uh, the issue of mills. Mm. Because what, one of the th things I found really interesting about some of your work is that there seems to be quite a good deal of evidence for peasants owning um, sh essentially timeshares and constructing um, water mills. And could, could, could you explain why water mills are, are so significant in this economy? And what does the fact that peasants seem to own them in part or fully tell us about this society? Sure. So as I mentioned earlier, this is a society in which cereal agriculture is extremely important, of mm -hmm. course. And the archaeology uh, of the last 20 years has suggested to us that there are um, storage systems mm. which allow um, hermetic sealing of grain. Mm. But of course, once you've turned grain into flour, 
Mm. Uh, this is an entirely different thing. What do you do with it then? Um, you have to do something else with it. This is not being stored in silos in the ground. So what um, peasants, I think, are doing is selling flour um, as surplus or perhaps providing um, flour, who knows, to monasteries um, in exchange for payment. Now, of course, we have to join the dots here. Uh, the nature of the documentation is such that there will always be an element of speculation. But whereas some historians, I think, have said in the past, look, um, there is something that looks like timeshare going mm. on here, I don't think they've really asked the next question, which is, if peasants are involved in this, why are they doing it? Mm. And they're doing it because presumably they are aiming for an existence beyond subsistence. Mm. They are they're, they're producing for a market. Precisely. Yeah. With all of the connotations that has also in social terms. And I, I guess also in, in cultural terms. Mm. They are, um, if you like, making a statement, but positioning themselves. And perhaps this is a route towards mobility within the rather small confines of the village. Um, why are mills significant? Um, because if you want to grain, if you, if you want to, sorry, um, uh, produce um, flour at scale, then, mm. then obviously a, a mill is the, is the technology of the day mm. to use. A commonplace here is that mills are all owned by lords. Mm. And that this is another way um, that, uh, another, let's say, tool at the disposition of lords when it comes to how they might exploit mm. the peasantry. And now, I'm not denying that there are circumstances and places in which this may well have been the case. Yeah. But what's striking about the documents I've been looking at is that we have peasants who are, um, I think, looking to, to not take possession necessarily of the mill, but to have access to the mill mm. so that they can produce um, at a level that goes beyond or takes them beyond subsistence. Yeah. I, I, I recall one of your examples is uh, a peasant man who um, I think he has uh, the right to use a mill every eighth day. Yes. So he has a sort of eighth share, if That's you'd right. like, in, in this mill. And he actually sells this to a monastery in exchange for some land. Yes. Um, which I, I found really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, and also, you know, beyond just the, you know, th this is um, clearly, you know, acting in a rational economic fashion. You've also, I think, got the point that, um, well, mills require a good deal of capital to, in, in order to, you know, they're a capital investment. In order mm. to build one, um, it takes quite a lot of effort. Mm. And in order to get the benefits of that effort to, to make the sort of costs, um, uh, the benefits outweigh the cost, is you have to expect that your ownership will be respected mm -hmm. for a, at least for a protracted period of time. Absolutely. Because if we have if we have this I idea of the peasant that oh well the lord can just come in and take whatever t whatever he likes mm -hmm. um, that well why would you why would you ever build build a mill in that case? Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, to come back to the the last point you make, the example you uh, picked up on from from my article um, well, look, if, if, if it is the case that we simply have a system of, um, sort of two binary factions here, one is much more powerful than the other, then I suppose one question would be, why doesn't the monastery simply expropriate the mill? Mm. Um, 
But they don't. What they do is they enter into an agreement whereby they buy the rights to a certain time mm. or certain, uh, uh, in terms of use um, of the mill. So um, the story, as you say, cannot be quite so simple. And there are interesting um, economic developments, I think, taking place. And perhaps, um, perhaps they've been, let's say, overlooked mm. slightly in that historians, I think, are perfectly happy to accept that this sort of thing goes on. But what it might mean in terms of emerging economic complexity, I think, yeah. is, is really what I'm trying to get at in my work. Yeah, and also cultural expectations and legal expectations Precisely. that you cannot simply expropriate something. You know, you cannot just expropriate a mill simply because it is owned by a few peasants. Yeah. Um, I, I found that really interesting. Um, uh, there's... There's been a, a paper in 2018 which kind of um, theorises that one of the reasons why you get the, the Great Divergence, why Western Europe starts to mm. pull ahead in economic terms mm -hmm. from other parts of Eurasia, um, is because of these cultural expectations of surrounding property rights. And therefore you get a higher density of, um, of mills and other you know, big pieces of of capital investment because people expect that it will be respected even mm. by the powerful. Yes, I read that piece and it's in the Economic History Review, I think, mm. Bas van Bavel's piece, and it's it's extremely suggestive. And I think that that must be part of the answer, but perhaps not the whole answer. So historians who've been working on trying to explain the Great Divergence, uh, I think one of the things that's occurred over the last 10 to 15 years is that they historians have been prepared to say, well, perhaps actually this divergence even starts a little bit earlier, mm. uh, and to take us back beyond um, the uh, industrial revolution. Exactly, um, and I think one thing that perhaps unlocked a certain kind of economic dynamism mm. um, in uh, northwestern Europe, in particular, um, in the very at the very end of the Middle Ages, is the fact that um, uh, guilds uh, become, let's say in relative terms, weaker than they had been, say, in the 13th century, so that by the time we're into the 16th century, and certainly the 17th century, um, we have um, private capital markets mm. emerging. Um, so that's, um, that's, I think, another element when it comes to explaining, um, perhaps, why certain conditions take root in northwestern Europe that we don't see elsewhere. Mm. And do... Obviously, your your main area is, is northern I, Iberia, but do do you see evidence in other parts of Western Europe for similar examples of peasants making these kind of investments? Well, that's a very good question. The difficulty we have is that the documents um, are sort of scattered um, in very different numbers in mm. terms of uh, collections as a whole throughout Western Europe. So... Um, for example, if you're looking at the period just before the period I work on, the place to look at would be Brittany, mm. where we have lots and lots of documents. Right. And we do actually have, um, I suppose, surprisingly autonomous peasants there as mm. well. Um, but then when the documentary trail goes cold, so to speak, historians are accustomed to needing to look elsewhere. One of the reasons why I work on Northern Iberia in this particular period is because it's very well documented. Mm. I mentioned earlier that we have charters, but... Um, uh, this is to include Catalonia as well, which is sometimes treated slightly separately for historical reasons, cultural reasons. But uh, across northern Iberia, 
um, we have, if we include Catalonia, something like 10,000 um, uh, wow. contracts of sale, uh, you know, charters. Just oh, to, over what period? Uh, let's say before um, the middle of the 11th century. Right, that's yeah. so very, very early. Yes. And, and just on this, um, we, we kind of skipped over this a bit, but who is writing? Who, who, is, who is producing huh. these documents? Are, 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 is it, are they all being produced by parish priests or are there some class of scribes or, or are peasants writing them themselves? I think the answer to that question is um, yes to all of the above. I think all of those... Including peasants? Yes, I think it might be perhaps better to hedge our bets very slightly and to, to put this in terms of people are proximate to literacy, or at least they exist in literate contexts in right. the period that I'm thinking about. So if you look at the 10th century and you think about peasants involved in transactions, not all of those peasants are writing those documents. Mm. Um, but they exist in contexts uh, in which they can go to somebody who not only will write the document for them, mm. but um, uh, is familiar with uh, standard conventions, uh, formally uh, is able, uh, so to speak, to to give these documents a professional appearance that will hold up in court. Mm. Um, all sorts of other questions emerge here. Did peasants have private archives is another mm. another thing to think about. I mean, what use is the contract being drawn up if you don't have access to it and you can't no. therefore... Um, you Use know, it as a, uh, precisely, in a court. Precisely, take it with you. Yeah. But there are clues in some of our um, charters in which um, references to documents and documents being used in court uh -huh. uh, are found. So, so is that also evidence for economic incentives for um, literacy, for, for learning how to at least have some sort of, um, I mean, would some peasants have been reading these documents? Again, that's a difficult question to answer. Um, I suppose to some degree it depends on how capacious you are willing to be when it comes to defining what you think a peasant is. Mm. But um, richer peasants who, um, let's say, rise to the top of the village world, uh, and this is a process which is largely built upon buying up the land of neighbours, mm. um, if they manage to consolidate themselves within the village, I mean, some of these families fall apart and mm. they sort of go cold. Yeah. Or the trail of them goes cold in the, in the documents. But sometimes you'll see, you'll see that a family is successful enough at this that one of their sons will become a monk or will become, an, will become perhaps even the abbot at the local monastery. Right. So they have risen in the world, so to speak. Mm. Um, and, of course, that is very much not only a literate context, but yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's a world sort of which is suffused with, with text. So, so we, we seem to get social, like real social mobility here, or, well, what, how, how far is the, um, how far can you rise? Oh, what's the ceiling? Um, yeah. I've speculated about this in, in a couple of articles where I've said, well, you know, it's hard to say because of how the documents look and the sort of information they provide, but I think we probably are seeing when we look at certain successful families, um, um, peasant buyers, we are seeing people who are clearly making a play for um, consolidated economic status um, and uh, social status. And social mobility is, if you like, um, 
part of the goal, so to speak. Mm. And, and there is an element of this that, of course, is rational. We discussed this earlier on. This is, this is, um, this is rational economic behaviour. Um, having said that, um, demonstrating that some of these people go on to acquire lordly status is extremely difficult. Um, mm. I suppose if you do become a lord, you probably, in most cases, don't want to emphasise the That's fact true. that a few generations ago you were That's right. a yes. successful peasant. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, I, I don't think humble origins were um, necessarily always considered uh, something to emphasise. Mm. Yeah, that's 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 re really interesting. Um, so, kind of one of the final points I, I, I wanted to bring up from from uh, one of your articles is um, we don't just get examples of peasants buying land using charters to um, defend their their property rights and buying investing in capital um, you also get a, a few examples of peasants owning mines which really surprised me yeah, there aren't very many examples of these, but there are a couple of examples, certainly from one of the documentary collections that I found, where um, a family that, uh, let's just say, it cannot be demonstrated that this family has uh, associations either with aristocratic groups or with the church. Mm. And they rather casually reel off their possessions. And among them, yes, they say they have rights to an iron ore mine. Um, Aha. Uh, we do see a, a couple of other occasions when... Um, Presumably this would have been quite a small scale operation. I think, I think so. But it is nonetheless interesting. Mm. I suppose if you were to put this in terms that an economist might appreciate, then then what we're thinking about here is diversification of assets. Yeah. Um, so I'm not suggesting necessarily that this is, of course, the the the, the, the logic norm. or the framework of of people doing this at this time. But you know, they they bought those rights for a reason, mm. um, and um, I think it's really important that um, we do look at these sorts of seemingly quite primitive first steps mm. and try to think about how these historicised examples can help us to um, to think about really quite important economic questions. Yeah, and what what's also really fascinating about this is these complex networks of relationships, of um, exchanges, of in, investment are happening in a context that is mostly without, mostly they're not using cash, they're mostly not using coins. This is a really good point, yes. Um, and it reminds us of a couple of things that I think are really significant. Um, this is a society that uses money. Mm. But of course, by money, I suppose we, we mean mode of payment, right? Mm. There are various ways, uh, various things you can use to make a payment. Mm. Um, it is a carpet. Precisely, a carpet, yeah. Um, it, is, it is very clear that, that um, conceptions of value and um, conceptions of the need to meet price in acceptable mm. ways um, were very deeply embedded in these societies. There isn't much coin. And one of the things that's interesting is that if you think that one of the advantages of, of coin mm. is that it increases the opportunities uh, and in fact the possibilities um, of uh, people who can use coin when it comes to what they might buy and how. Mm. Now, if we have this density of transaction of the kind that I've tried to uh, underline in my work, and yet it's a society that doesn't produce coin, I think it must say something about how deeply embedded um, 
certain uh, aspects of what in other periods people have called you know, the acquisitive impulse are in this society. Um, it's a society in which the institutional frameworks to facilitate exchange aren't very strong, and yet there's a lot of exchange. Mm. Yeah, that's that's really really fascinating. It's a, it's a it's a great example of sort of spontaneous order emerging, perhaps in, in a yeah. medieval context. It's it, it, it's certainly I think a challenge to um, perhaps even to the new institutional economics because there is a sense in which um, we are going to have to find an alternative explanation for why we see economic activities of the kind I've been diagnosing. Mm. If it isn't the case that institutions were robust enough and prominent enough to uh, not only facilitate those, um, those uh, transactions, mm. but perhaps to encourage them. What else lies beneath this, I suppose, is really what I'm, yeah. what I'm looking into at the moment. And I, just, to, just for a second, just to carry on on that point, um, I've been thinking about economic anthropology quite a lot mm. um, as a way of trying to sort of get my head around this. And I'm, I'm, I'm very struck by some of the ideas that emerge there about um, Marshall Silence's idea of emergent leaders, for example. Mm. Um, and uh, this is not a de uh, sort of, this is not a society in which social hierarchies are um, extre extreme, mm. but they've emerged nonetheless. And not through a process of state coercion. Yes. That, that, that's so, sometimes the sort of notion you get that um, social stratification is always the product of coercion and external imposition. That's interesting. And, and I think what it does show, though, is that perhaps uh, uh, what historians might want to do, and I certainly do want to continue to do this, yeah. is to return to, the, to trying to understand the internal dynamic of, of the village community. This is... Um, something we can get at given the documents we have and the sorts of things they tell us about. Mm. But it's also where I suspect the very origins of um, social complexity really start to take place. Right. That's, that's fascinating. And I mean, just to sort of finish off, really, um, do you think there are uh, lessons we can take from uh, studying uh, 10th century stories and apply them to modern agrarian countries, maybe in the, the developing world? Sure. Uh, so uh, it's worth saying that, that, that I come um, very much at this um, with, the, with the background of a historian mm. rather than an economist. But there has been some work done um, um, which looks to do uh, what you've uh, just outlined. So... Um, Douglas North's work on uh, the rise and fall of the manor, for example, um, it seems to have uh, inspired or perhaps influenced people who are interested in trying to understand um, development economics. Um, as you say, uh, trying to think about um, whether we need to look at social dynamics, mm. uh, property ownership, um, stable frameworks, yeah. stable institutions, all of these things do exist in some form or another in the Middle Ages, right? Mm. So without being too instrumentalist about it, there are enough parallels, I think, to say that having some knowledge uh, of that sort of long durée background mm. um, can only be helpful. Yeah. Uh, because all economic activity, of course, is, takes place in a particular historical 
context, mm. which is why we study, um, um, well, I suppose all history, but the Middle Ages in particular. Yeah. Um, it's a bit, it can be used, uh, I think, fruitfully. Well, yeah, I, I, I would totally agree with that. But uh, unfortunately, we're, we're running up against uh, time. So thank you so much for, thank you. Um, for coming on and speaking. Uh, we, we will definitely have you on again if you're, if you're able to. Um, thank you, everyone, for watching. Um, if you liked the video, please click like. Uh, you can also subscribe. And uh, we will put some of the articles that we discussed in the uh, video description. So, thank you.